quick review of the book of Mark. The book of Mark opens up with a beautifully written declaration of hope. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, Son of God. I just want to say that again. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, Son of God. This is the arrival of Messiah, the Savior, the King who was the fulfillment of so many scriptures and ancient promises written in the Old Testament. The story of Jesus, God with us, didn't start in the Gospels, but actually started way back in Genesis where God's word told us that one day there would be a snake-crushing king who would one day come, and he would be a descendant of Abraham and Judah and David. And he would be the one that the prophets would speak of that would one day come like Isaiah, who said that by his stripes and by his wounds, we would be healed. This is that Messiah. So when Mark tells us the beginning of the of the good news, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It really is good news. I'm not sure how your news feed is lately, or even how your heart feed is lately, or your mind feed is lately, but um, I can tell you that this is the good news. And the more and more that our, our culture sort of twists and turns into whatever variation it's becoming at this present state. This good news of Jesus, Messiah, is just settling in more and more. It's, it's becoming more of a singular focus in my heart. I'm like, this really is the good news. This is what I actually speak to my children about as the hope of the world. This is what my wife and I talk about and dream about, that the good news of Jesus is actually a reality. And I think of Proverbs 13, 12, that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe this morning you're feeling that. You're just feeling I've, I've lost a bit of hope. I've lost a bit of, of that, that edge of like, man, God is going to do something incredible. But this morning, I want to remind you before we do anything that this is the good news. This is the good news of Messiah Jesus who has come. So, getting back to Mark. The book of Mark's broken up in three parts. Part one is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. If you guys were here at the beginning of, of Mark, you guys have followed all the way through. My family and I moved here around November-ish, so I kind of dove in the middle in part two where Jesus' ministry was on the road with his disciples. It's fledgling group, and they're basically making their way down to Jerusalem. And then part three is where we've started like three or four weeks ago, Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. And so for the rest of the book of Mark, we're really peering into the last seven days of Jesus' life, his, his earthly ministry here on earth. And so here we are in part three of the book of Mark. And Mark begins part three with the triumphal entry. You guys remember that, right? The triumphal entry. It's the most seminal moment that takes place just days before the crucifixion of Jesus Messiah. It's the beginning of what's traditionally known as Holy Week. So we're on day three, but on Sunday, 
right? Sunday of this Holy Week, Jesus rides in on a donkey. He slowly makes his way into Jerusalem, fulfilling that prophecy. And Zechariah 9, 9, the people have the palm branches. And, and what are they saying? What are they singing? Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. And then that night, Jesus goes two miles with his disciples to a town called Bethany. He comes back on Monday morning. If you guys remember, he cursed a fig tree on his way to Jerusalem. And then on his, in, when, he, when he arrived in the temple, he flips over the money changers' tables. We just read about this, right? And then he goes back to, to Bethany two miles away with the disciples. And now it's Tuesday morning, and Jesus again is on his way back to Jerusalem. And again, he passes that same fig tree that he cursed, the disciples noticed it, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I think this is, this is the Messiah. The, the fig tree's totally withered. And last week, Stephen, he preached a wonderful word on having a Jesus kind of faith, inviting the, the whosoever's, the you, the me, the poor, the rich, into a life of faith-filled prayer. And if you missed Stephen's message last week, please go, go ahead and check it out. Okay, so... Here we are. We finally arrived. We're caught up to speed. Jesus has come back to the temple courts. He's come back after he just flipped the money changers tables 24 hours earlier. And here we are. So before we dive in, I have invited Asha to come up. Many of you guys know Asha and Alejandro. We love them so much. I, I, I was just blessed them. No. We, we love what you guys, who you are in this community. So, Asha, why don't you come on up? And I've asked Asha to go ahead and read the text, Mark 11. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. They, he sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of God. Thanks, Sasha, so much. Gosh, I love having the word of God just read over me and over us as a community. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, or you can follow along on the screen. Here we are, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. So Jesus comes back. He comes back after completely disrupting their entire day, 24 hours prior. He comes back to the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they, they all recognize him in verse 27. And in verse 28, they say, what authority, what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to flip over the tables and say the things <clears throat> that he said? So there's really nothing wrong with the question that they asked. In fact, in the first century culture, it's pretty common if there's a, a new rabbi in town or, or, or a new student or someone who comes and speaks a heavy word or speaks a word, it's pretty common for them to ask their credentials. It's pretty common to say, you know, what school or, or university did you come from to ask about their rabbi? And maybe the person would respond by giving them, you know, all of their credentials. And, and in that culture, the, the more credentials you have, the greater authority you would have. And I think it's actually a pretty a, kind of appropriate question if, like, one of you came to my house and then just flipped over, you know, all the tables and all the food went everywhere flying. And then you grabbed your own whip that you just pulled out and you just started to, like, you know, shooing my dogs and cats out of my... I'd be like, so, so like... What authority do you come in? Like, where do you come off, you know, doing this in our home? But the only problem here is that Jesus knows there's something much deeper going on behind, the, behind their questioning of Jesus. They're, they're not just asking a very friendly, so tell us, where, where did you come from? Which rabbi did you study under? They were, they were looking for ways to not just end the ministry of Jesus, but they were looking for ways to end the life of Jesus. They were hoping to find something, some way to catch him somehow that would give them legal grounds for death. I mean, they'd heard about all the, all the ways he was disrupting all the synagogues and, and the orderliness in Galilee. The rumors were true. And then here he is, he's come down to Jerusalem. He's made his way into their house, into the temple courts, into their space. And he does what he does, and they're looking for a way to take this guy out. 
But Jesus doesn't play their game. He doesn't answer the way that they hope he will. He doesn't refer to his credentials. I mean, we, what's he going to say, you know? Like, well, I studied under this guy. and He doesn't, he doesn't give any of his influential rabbis who have who've, um, spoken into his life. In fact, he answers their question with a question. And he leaves them all with one obvious conclusion that his authority doesn't come from a rabbi. His authority comes from God himself. In fact, he starts implying, we're going to see shortly in this parable, it's one of the few places in the Bible that Jesus actually kind of indirectly implies he is. He is God. So in verse 31 and in verse 32, it says that they discussed it among themselves and said, okay, so if, if we say from heaven... He, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if, but if we say, well, actually, let me go back to verse 29. Jesus said, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing all these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? You tell me. So they're discussing these things, and they're, they're actually confused. They did not expect this to come from Jesus. And, and they're thinking, gosh, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, then, then why, didn't, why didn't you believe in it? If we say, well, it's from, it's from human origin, then they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So the, so the rabbis are stunned here. They're stumped. They do not know how to answer Jesus. They have no idea. If they say that John the Baptist had no authority, which would totally discredit Jesus... The crowds would be totally, totally upset. They realize that Jesus essentially has trapped them. They've never been trapped before. They've held all the cards. They've never been trapped like this. And they're trying to get out of it. And instead of speaking truthfully, they start thinking politically. They start thinking tolerantly. They're trying to, to appease everybody. They, they're thinking of these people and these people and these. Oh, yeah, we can't forget about the priests up in, in Galilee. And what about the future? And what about Rome here? We have to keep balance. We have to keep power. They're, they're just thinking about how can we say something that's not going to offend anybody. They don't want to support Jesus, but, but they, they also want to speak truth. So their final brilliant answer to Jesus' question if you look at verse 33, we, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know, Jesus. We don't know. And Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. These rabbis and these religious teachers, they give a safe answer. They give a tolerant answer. They give a dishonest answer. And, and really, they're giving a cowardly answer because they do know. They do know actually what's going on in their hearts. But they just don't want to say it. They're, they're more interested in what's more convenient and what's more safe for them. It's the kind of answer that actually rings very true in our current cultural climate. John Barclay, 
a British biblical scholar, author, brilliant historian of first century Christianity. He said this, this whole moment of the Pharisees here is a vivid example of what happens to men who will not face the truth. They have to twist and wriggle and in the end get themselves into a position in which they're so helplessly involved that they have nothing to say. And I just say, adding to what Barclay just said, the longer that we avoid facing the truth of what's really, really going on inside, the longer we avoid facing the truth of, of, of the deep issues that are happening inside of us, we're, we're going to be spending a lifetime, not just a moment. And, and maybe you're experiencing this now. Spending a lifetime of twisting and wriggling and we're just leaking out of our dysfunctional heart and all that we do because the truth is we need to address what's going on inside of us. We have to address the, the issues of what's happening in our heart. And Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart because from your heart flow the issues of life. We're going to see in just a minute that Jesus is not satisfied with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the high priests. He's not satisfied with their neutral stance to his question. Jesus wasn't satisfied with neutrality then, and Jesus isn't satisfied with neutrality now. We're going to watch Jesus masterfully expose the layers of darkness and compromise and self-preservation that exists within their hearts of the religious leaders and the high priests, right there in their own backyard in the temple courts. Matthew 12, 30, another gospel, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather, me, gather with me scatters. If you remember just 24 hours prior, what did Jesus do? He came in flipping the money changers tables and using a whip to kick out all the animals. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit after you. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit after me. And Jesus is relentless in his pursuit after us, a community of Jesus followers that we call Reality Santa Barbara. And when Jesus pursues us, he can't help but expose the lies that exist within our own heart because he is the light. When Jesus pursues us, his light exposes the very thing that we try to hide. And when the light of the world, Messiah, makes all things good and right, and he comes closer and closer to us, the darkness has to be confronted. It just has to be. It has to be confronted. There's no neutrality with Jesus. The private places and spaces of darkness that exist in the very bottom of our hearts, they have to be confronted. 
the places of, of, of darkness and sin and self that are corrupting our marriages. They have to be confronted. The traces of darkness and, and sin and self that are, that are causing generational damage because we'd rather meet our own needs than meet the needs of our children. Well, they have to be confronted. The endless cycle of dysfunctional relationship after dysfunctional relationship in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our families, in our schools, they have to be confronted. The hurts, the pains, the heartache, the damage that we've done to others, the damage that's been done to us, they demand to be confronted. The narrative that we've bought into, that being God of our own lives is better than following after the God who gave us life, it must be confronted. And when you and me come face to face with Jesus Messiah and his very presence, he confronts our past. He confronts our present he confronts what's to come, and the darkness must be dealt with. And it's not just a one-time prayer. It's, it's a life of allegiance to practicing the way of Jesus, our great high king. Jesus isn't pursuing us to be the villain in our lives. He's not pursuing us to be an antagonizing God who taunts his creation. He's not pursuing us to be a provoker who just pokes and pokes and pokes. He's not a relentless irritant who shames and hurts and vilifies us. He's not some lowercase g God whose only job is to remind us that we're failures. That actually sounds like our enemy. The reason why Jesus is so relentless in his pursuit of us and exposing the lies that we can't even see is because God is a good father and he's a loving God who knows that when these twisted lies and narratives of our heart are exposed and brought into the light, the truth will actually set us free. The truth will set us free. Jesus said, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Jesus didn't come to hurt. He came to help. He didn't come to bring burden. He came to lift them. So, how does this soon to be at this moment in the first century on Tuesday, three days before crucifixion, five, six days before resurrection, how does this soon to be snake crushing King Jesus Messiah respond to the chief priests and the teachers of the law? How's he do it? He tells them a parable. Jesus is going to expose in this parable their willful, stubborn, deliberate, evil opposition in a, in a parable so plain they can't miss it. He's not hiding anything. 
In some parables, people are kind of baffled, trying to understand what he's talking about. Jesus in this parable is, is not trying to hide anything. He's speaking so plainly, so clearly, that there's no way anyone in his vicinity would be able to miss it. So if you want to follow along, Mark 12, verse 1, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. Are there any farmers in the house? <laughs> yes, I think I see, I see. There's one farmer in the house. Most of us, this parable is news to us. We have no idea what in the world Jesus is talking about, right? Like, okay, let's, let's get to the point. What are you talking about? Let, let, let's, let's get to the end of it, right? What are you saying? He's talking about vineyards. But the audience that Jesus is talking about completely knows what he's referring to. A vineyard all throughout Scripture, if you're, if, if you're a Jew or, or a, a citizen of Israel, if you're, if you're of that culture, a vineyard all throughout Scripture is, is a reference to Israel. It's a reference to Israel. This, this visual of a vineyard is deeply ingrained in Jewish culture as it's found through various passages all over the Old Testament. And perhaps the most famous passage referring to vineyards in the Old Testament would be Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I'm just going to read it. It's not, it's not back here. I'm just going to read Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. But I'm just going to read the first two verses. He says, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it only yielded bad fruit. So this passage was so well known, literally. This passage that I just read is so well, it was, it was taught to their children. It was taught in school. It was taught by every rabbi. I mean, this is so common. It's like, it's like our Pledge of Allegiance or something. This is, this is so, like, when, when we say the Star Spangled Banner, we all go somewhere. Or when we say America, it, it's filled with all kinds of things that come to our mind about our American culture, right? Isaiah 5 is one of those passages that is just, yep, get it. Isaiah 5, vineyard. A guy was building a vineyard, but it, it uh, yielded only bad fruit. So, it's so well known, every high priest, every religious leader, every student of the Torah would have known it by memory. And Jesus is basically retelling this story with a few key differences. In fact, the moment he begins this parable, you can see the high priest instantly going to Isaiah 5. He knows, they know exactly what he's referencing here. And the parable Jesus was telling was meant to be obvious. Asha just read it to us. And when Jesus is speaking to the high priest, he's basically saying what the high priests already know in this vineyard, or excuse me, in this parable, that the vineyard is Israel. The owner is God, and the son, I think they've gathered, this is the new part of the, of the parable, 
was Jesus. At the end of this parable in verse 12, it says that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Through this story, Jesus is exposing the deep, irrational hatred they had for him. There's something about Jesus that these religious leaders deeply, deeply hate. But think about it. What do these chief priests really hate? Like, what did Jesus really say here that really, it's not like, I don't like this guy, Jesus. And I'm not really a fan. I mean, you know, he's, 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 he's done a, a lot of nice things, but I really, not, not really, you know. No, they hate him. They hate him from the very bottom of their soul. They hate him. They can't stand him. Some people disagree, but not these guys. It's deep in their bones. There's so much vitriol and hatred for Jesus that in three days he's going to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. But why? Let's take a look at verse 2 through 5, chapter 12. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They see, but they seized him, they beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They, they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and others they killed. So this is the picture, right? This is the parable. There's an owner. This is very, very common even in first century culture. Vineyards, there was an owner, and he would go away, and he would hire some tenants and some farmers to take care of that. And every now and then, he'd send a messenger or or a helper and someone to come and just kind of collect some of the vineyards and, and, and collect his portion um, of, of, of all the earnings. But in this parable, the owner of the vineyard that he loves so much, he sends messengers, but the tenants beat them and, and kill some. And he keeps sending messenger after a messenger, and he beats them. Why? Dominic Doan is a speaker, an author, and he's a professor of applied theology at George Fox University. He's also a teacher at Westside, a Jesus church in Portland, Oregon. And I think he's so spot on here. He says, through this story, The hatred of these tenants is rooted in an insatiable desire for power and control. These servants were hired by the owner. Their, their job was to cultivate the land, to be fruitful, and to give the owner a percentage. Hear this. But they're acting like owners. They're acting like owners. They were called to be stewards but they're acting like owners. We're tapping into one of the biggest reasons these high priests hated Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he disrupted the ownership mentality of the high priests. He disrupted the ownership mentality 
of the high priest. We are not owners of, of the life that we've been given. We're tenant farmers. We're tenant farmers of all that God has given to us. And our culture, just like this parable that Jesus is sharing here, is trying to twist it to say, no, you're the owner. You are the owner of your own life. It belongs to you. Do what you want with it. Say what you want with it. Act how you want with it. Surround yourself the way that you'd like to tailor make your own life. You are the owner. You're not the tenant. You're the owner. This is at the very core of their hatred and their insane hostility toward Jesus because they did not want to give up ownership of their own life. They didn't want to give it up. They don't want to be tenant farmers. They don't want to yield to the owner. They want to be owners. Do you know what this is? This is Genesis 3. This is the same lie that the serpent offered Adam and Eve to take ownership over your own life in exchange for the stewarding of the life that was given to us by the good owner. They gave up the rich blessing that comes with stewarding all that God gave them in the garden, in his presence, in exchange for ownership of their own life, a life outside of the presence of God that only led them further away, further deep, and further down. They chose to be God over their own life. They chose to be owners instead of tenants. This hostility doesn't come from any place. It's a slow build. It's a slow churning away. I mean, you think, how did, how did the high priest get there? It's not like overnight they're just like, I hate this guy. I want to murder him. I, I want to see him killed. I want to see everything about him dismissed. It's not like they just woke up one day and had this realization, I hate Jesus. This was a lifetime, a lifetime of buying into the narrative that the serpent offered Adam and Eve, an offer to be God of your own life, to take life on your own terms, to take control of your finances, to take control of your sexuality, to take control of your relationships, to do it your way. But the end is total ruin, total destruction of your heart, and it will just turn you more and more into yourself and further and further away from the heart of God. So closing up, closing here, look at verse six and seven. What did the good owner do? He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, go respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him. 
and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. This parable cuts at the very heart of the hatreds of the tenant's power grab as in direct contrast to God's unfailing grace to give opportunity after opportunity for repentance, messenger after messenger after messenger. And after constant rejection, God's mercy continues on and he sends his only son. In this parable, the owner sent his only son that he loved and they killed him. This parable exposes God's willingness to give himself through his son in total vulnerability in order to win his people back to himself. Psalm 118 and verse 9 and 10, Jesus asks, what's the owner going to do? He's going to come. He's going to kill those tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. And he says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? And he goes to Psalm 118, and he quotes this song that would be so recognizable because 48 hours earlier, the people were just singing it and saying it and praising God, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus doesn't quote that part this time because in three days, they would shout, crucify him, crucify him. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in, in our eyes. Andrea McKenzie, why don't you guys come up? I love, by the way, I've known Andrea for a very long time. The first chapter of our lives in Santa Barbara, she was here, and we worked together for four years, and I'm just getting to know Mackenzie, love her too, and I, and I love Andrea, she's a priest. When she gets up here, she's going to do what I and Robert and Colette and however many of you have sang and, and joined in on this portion of what we call worship and ministering to Jesus and God. And we get an opportunity as Andrea and Mackenzie lead us to confront the spaces in our life that we've neglected. And as the music's playing over us, feel free, come on up. As the music's playing over us and as, as the songs are being sung and as you enter in and engage, God's spirit is going to arrive because God's word promises that he inhabits the praises of his people. And this is why we do this, by the way, to pray, to worship, to gather, because God's word says that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. God has called us to be stewards. He's not called us to be owners.
God forgive us for taking, God forgive us for taking ownership and not yielding to the master owner, the good owner. And I think God's confronting us this morning. Just as he confronted the high priest, God's confronting us. He's confronting us with his goodness. He's confronting us with his hope and his life and his light. He's confronting the darkness and the sin and the self. And we can become hostile before God. But remember, just like the high priest, that, host, that hostility, it doesn't just happen overnight. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I flat out want complete ownership of my life. I do. And maybe there's a part of your heart this, this morning that thinks that you deserve it because of your past or because of your, because of your pain or, or because of your struggles. And, and maybe there's some of you here this morning that you've never actually given up ownership of your life. Maybe you've attended church a lot of your life, or maybe you've just been hanging out, but you realize, like those high priests, like those tenants, you've never actually given up ownership of your life. You've never actually fully surrendered that part of your life. I think God is confronting you here. He's confronting you now because you know that some parts of all your life has just been ruin and destruction. Maybe this morning God's confronting hardness, the hardness that has taken place in your life. And you feel yourself growing in hostility toward Jesus. You feel there's spaces in your heart and your life that are actually becoming hardened. And, and, and you feel it in your relationships. You feel it all around you. God wants to confront you with his goodness today to soften your heart. And maybe you feel like you're one of the messengers in the story. That you are, you love Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And you are, you're, you're sharing the word with people. You're, you're reaching out to the marginalized and the poor and you're, you're practicing the way of Jesus. And in your community here, you're, you're giving and you're giving, but you just be, keep be, being rejected over and over again. God hasn't forgotten you. He wants to confront you now with his goodness and his grace. So let's enter into a time of worship. Let's enter into a space where we can allow the Holy Spirit to just reach into our hearts. Let's minister to him and let's allow him to minister to us. That might mean you need to just move to a different chair or a different space. It, it may mean that you need to physically do something to tell your heart and your mind, we're serious about this. Maybe you should come here and find a space in the corner and, 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 and just call out to God. 
I'll be here if you want to reach out. I'm here for prayer. G's there in the back. Chris is there in the back. If you want to reach out to any of us, but let's just come together. Let's worship the Lord. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to move and, 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 and impress him himself and his glory upon his people here this morning. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between the bone and the marrow and the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We give you permission, Lord, to have your way. Move within us. Move within your people, Lord. Bring breakthrough. Revive us, Lord. Renew us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.